Hi, my name's Tom. This is Stempunk. Uh, we're going to interview someone today that uh, I just met very recently, uh, but I'm, uh, you're much better at doing introductions than me. So if you want to introduce yourself, go for it. Uh, good afternoon. My name's Corey Tut. I'm, I'm here to talk about Indigenous science. Fantastic. All right. So let's get straight into it. What do you do? What do I do? Um, I'm an animal technician by trade. So that means I, I work with um, breeding research colonies. And for fun, I like to um, be a science communicator and bring science to Indigenous people. Um, so one of the things I do is I supply science books to remote schools around Australia to try and inspire the next generation. Uh, you said you uh, breed animals. Yep. Which animals? So I breed laboratory rodents for medical research. Um, so basically, I breed genetically modified organisms for medicine, not animal testing, but um, more aligned to genetic medicine. So that's here at the University of Sydney. And which animals? Uh, so mainly um, laboratory mice and rodents. And yeah, so that's what I sort of specialize in. <laughs> So what does that look like every day? What do you? What's a day for you? You go in oh. and you just breed animals. Yeah, what's a day for me? It's it's a lot of work. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. We have like a lot of um, sort of. There's a lot of finicky jobs. Like there's a lot of cage changing. There's a lot of um, looking at litters. There's a lot of weaning. There's a lot of tissue collection. Um, so with tissue collection, we take like a little sample of the ear to test the DNA to make sure that we're breeding the right mice. Um, there's a lot of that. So it's a quite a hectic day. Um, so there's no real average day. There's so many variables. So <laughs> uh, here's a question I've always wanted to know. Like if you're the you're the technician, you're the one going in doing the like the breeding. Yeah. You're not a research scientist, so you're not doing the research, but do you have any like input into the, the direction of research or do you have any input into the science that they do? So not, not necessarily, but we do have a lot of input into how we breed the animals. Um, we've got a very important responsibility as animal technicians for animal welfare. So um, if, if there's like a project that we're a bit unsure of, we'll let the researcher know, you know, hey, maybe this is not the best route to go down. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's quite an important role. Um, I, I like to think of this as sort of like a link in the chain for research. You know, the researcher's got his hypothesis of um, where they would like to go with their experiment and where sort of the chain that gets them in the right way. I think animal welfare is really important with that. Uh, I 100% agree. Is there any, like, let's say the researcher wants to do a certain test yep. or run a certain thing. Uh, is there any, uh, is there a time where you guys could say, oh, we can't do that. Like, we just can't do that. Yeah, there, there's quite a, um, there's quite a strict sort of ethics protocol that we have to go on. Um, we're not allowed to do anything that's really invasive on the animal that's going to prolong suffering. Um, you know, we're very big on that. Uh, where so there's a lot of hoops that the researchers have to jump through for um, ethical standards for medical research in Australia, which is a great thing. Could always be yep. better, but it's a great thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how did you get into uh, breeding animals for universities? So it was really interesting. Um, I used to shear alpacas. And I used to go around the world shearing alpacas. No way, and around the world. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> What's um, the craziest place you've been to shearing alpacas? Probably New Zealand. Um, <laughs> I remember it was a place in Dunedin and we we're, we we're on a mountain and we could see the whole of like the harbour and it was pretty amazing. Um, and then I sort of, I sheared um, one, of the, one of my bosses that worked at the Garvin Institute many years ago um, ran a, a mouse breeding facility and then that's how I got 
a job there so I, it was kind of like six degrees of separation so <laughs> yeah right yeah so what do you do why were you shearing alpacas so while i was shearing alpacas i was um so basically the story is is i when i was 16 i started down at shawhaven zoo and was working as a zookeeper getting an apprentice jackaroo wage um some things sort of happened and I, I lost a close friend to suicide uh-huh. and my stepdad was in the reading um, the jobs in the paper and he saw alpaca handler and I'm like well I'm already handling crocodiles and tiger snakes so I might as well go handle alpacas um, so I went to this guy's house and he's like you start Monday and I'm <laughs> like what this is like a job interview but and then yeah started off in the southern highlands and then we sort of went out to adelaide we sheared ep cambridge that year and that was the biggest alpaca stud in Australasia. um and then yeah it sort of took us around took us everywhere um so it was a it was an amazing trip and i think for a young guy that had had suffered such loss as a young person it was the best thing i could have ever done i learned so much on the road Um, i learned so much seeing the alpacas i learned so much about science as well yeah. Um, just about everything you are saying, like in my head, I was like, hang on, we got to go back to that. Yeah, <laughs> that, no. <laughs> that, that's, that's great. I love it. I love a, a sentence that has so much in it that like I can't even keep up. That's fantastic. Do you miss crocodiles? I, I do miss crocodiles. Um, they are the most uh, sweetest animals and probably the most dangerous animals you can imagine. Um, they're very emotional. So, a lot of people see crocodiles as these, you know, sort of cold-hearted, rock-hard, heartless sort of creatures, um, but they're actually quite emotional. There's a bit of a story I can tell you. Please. So, when uh, when I was at the zoo, we were building a, like a, a roof on the um, crocodile enclosure, and it was really funny. It was like we built this roof and we spray-painted it black, and it was Johnny and Dawn. Johnny and Dawn were like our two big crocodiles. So Johnny was a big one. He was um, he was a male. He was 4.5 meters long. Um, he was a man eater. And so if they're over 3.5 meters long, they're a class as a man eater. So they can <laughs> yeah, eat right. a person. Um, and Dawn was just, she was only a little baby. She was like three meters long or something like that. Probably longer now. And um, yeah, we put this roof on the enclosure and Johnny didn't eat for three and a half months. Really? He was so um, upset that we had gone into his home and we had put a roof on his enclosure. And then all of a sudden, um, it was one of the guys that was feeding him one afternoon and um, Johnny came out of the water and shocked him and ate. So, <laughs> wow. eating. so they, are, they are quite emotional. Um, they're incredible creatures that they, just the slightest little um, change to the environment that can put them off. So, um, they are quite sensitive. So when you're handling crocodiles, is what, what's what's the outcome? What are you trying to do when you're handling a crocodile? So um, you purely purely for educational purposes, and also um, it's a good chance to check over the crocodile and make sure that you know they're healthy. And I think that you know zoos are important because they play quite a good role with education, especially um, with crocodiles. Because most people would think crocodiles are cold-hearted. You know, they're going to eat me, and yes, they will probably eat you. But it's um, there's a lot more to them and it's something prehistoric you're actually like seeing a living breathing dinosaur and that that's always fascinated me so so after uh you know crocodiles and other things in the zoo yeah then alpacas yeah <laughs> uh traveling the world with yeah. alpacas yeah and then uh mice at sydney yeah what's uh 
what what's on your mind where do you want to go now what do you want to do so i've always loved um telling the story of our animals like i've always i think that our animals are really like animals are really cool i call it you know they've always like every animal's got this sort of like unique ability that i call it like an animal superpower you know whether it be like a lizard with a, a third eye a partial eye which allows them to see in color or like just we've got such cool stories um being an indigenous man i sort of I've noticed that I've never really met any other indigenous people working with animals yeah. in my travels. And yeah, I'm just, I've been kind of um, trying to inspire more indigenous people into the animal industry because who better to tell the story of Australian animals than indigenous people? Than Australians. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you were telling me before, and this is, this is part of what you do now, yeah. is sending books to Indigenous schools around Australia. Yeah. Tell me about that, you bloody legend. <laughs> so um, I absolutely love this. It's sort of a project I've sort of come up with with a few scientists around the uni. We've, we've sort of been building the Indigenous Science Committee. And one of the things that, one of the goals for 2019 was I wanted to reach as many people with the story of science and animals as I could. Um, so I ended up, sort of like I rang a few schools in the Northern Territory I'm like oh like how many science books do you have like and sort of just asking just general questions of principles and I was sort of like well we don't actually have many science books and there was a school of um, 350 kids and they only had 15 science books so it was very low and I'm like okay I've got to do something about this and I started sending them science books and then it sort of has grown to from being one school to like four or five schools now and then I our friend Dr. Carl, he um, sort of, he's been a bit of a hero of mine. He's sort of been helping us out with the AIM mentoring group and um, helping us with mentoring kids. And just, he's such an inspiration because he's got such a high profile. Um, he's been helping us. So he's sent us a few books as well. And then he's, um, we've sort of booked in Skype sessions with the schools as well. So they're going to be able to ask um, Dr. Carl questions. And I think every kid is a scientist. And it sounds pretty crazy, but if you've ever asked why the sky is blue and if you've ever asked why the grass is green, that is a science question and they're good questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that you've connected with Carl um, yeah. uh, because he has, like you said, such a reach uh, and tells great stories and you have a great story to tell. Yeah. I think, I think that's really fantastic. I've got a, uh, I, use, I use this story every now and then and it makes me think of uh, the stuff that we don't know. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, people who listen to this podcast have probably heard this story many times, but, but I love it. It, it. it gets me every time. So I used to be in a program that used to, to go around Australia doing science presentations. <clears throat> so we'd go to some of the places where indigenous communities. We went to this place called Maningrida and Owen Pelly, you know, around there in the Northern Territory, right? So there's this one school in Maningrida, about eight kids. Uh, we 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 didn't speak the same language, right? I didn't have any language. They didn't speak much English, but we went there. We went there to try and teach them about science. So we had a big long balloon, right? Uh, and you let the balloon go, and the air comes out one way, and the balloon goes the other way, right? It's a demonstration of laws of motion, right? So you say to the the students, we used to do this all over the country, and they'd get it. The kids would get it, right? So we we show this. We we um we show the the indigenous students. And we point the balloon there and the, the air's that way and the balloon's going to go that way. And then we ask them, which way is the balloon going to go? <laughs> and they all point it up in the air. 
And we're like, they clearly didn't get it. So we're going to explain it again. So we explain it again. Air's going that way. Balloon's going that way. All right, where's the balloon going to go? And they all pointed up into the air again. And we're like, okay, they've just not got it. <laughs> we're going to have to show them. And then they will understand, right? So then we, we, uh, we let the balloon go. And the balloon went whoosh, straight up into the air exactly where they pointed that's amazing and that was because the wind took it yeah right the wind took the balloon we were outside we didn't feel the wind because we weren't looking out for it but yeah. these kids and i was like wow we're in their lab now yeah, <laughs> like definitely. i got some stuff to learn uh that was a fantastic lesson and it always uh, like i think about that often because it's about the stuff that we know the stuff that we don't know and the, and the people who we need to learn from yeah uh, are the people who know about this stuff yeah it's, it was uh what a lesson that was that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if you if you've read Dark Emu, it's it, the science that Indigenous people have had over thousands of years is incredible. We manage the land, and yeah, it's, it's so much we can learn from the past. It's crazy. Is, does does the book Dark Emu have any like it? It, it tells a, it. You were telling me about it before. Like it yeah. talks about the, the the past history lessons that we've had of Indigenous science and Indigenous culture. Yeah. Does it talk about the future at all? Um, it doesn't really go into the future, but I find that, like, this is the future now. Mm-hmm. It's by learning from the past is that we we accept the lessons from the past and we actually take them into the future because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in that book that, as an indigenous person, I I did not know. Um, we're taught a certain uh, we're taught certain things at school that um, that sort of like. It, it doesn't really tell us the full start of the story. So, um, part of what I want to do is I want to tell our side of the story as Indigenous people, but mm-hmm. I also want to I want to encourage, like, Indigenous people to tell the story in the future. And the future is, you know, more people in Indigenous science and growing it. And I think that the discoveries of the past can lead us to the discoveries of the future, and that's really big. It's really powerful. So, I think Dark Emu... Although it's, it focused a lot on the past, it's a really good lesson for the future because we, kind of, um, we kind of skip a beat when we, we don't really educate ourselves on the past. I've, I've even um, started to realize that some of the lessons we learn, some of the stuff that we do in the future have already been lessons in the past. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think we need to keep our eyes open more. Well, if you look at the first fish traps, um, they were indigenous traps, and you know that was that's pretty amazing. That's science in itself. Like, what's the best way and yeah. most humane way to catch a fish? And they were already doing it. Um, you know, you look at the honey ants, and the Aboriginal people already knew that you needed glucose, and um, yeah. it's it's something you need when you're in the outback and you're dehydrated. You need glucose. You need yeah. sugar. You need to raise those blood sugars, and they already knew how to do that stuff. So it's yeah. quite amazing. And there's and there's all those examples that we've heard of back burning, bush yeah. medicine. Uh, you were telling me before cloves to you know yeah. natural antibiotics, um, you know navigation by the stars. There's there's all of that, but there's so much more that we need. There's so yeah. much more, and I mean these these people li- lived on probably the most arid climate on earth. That's amazing, and that's something that should be celebrated. Sure. Um, and I think that like the interesting thing is even ecology, um, the way the indigenous people used to manage the land, they mm-hmm. they never took too much. Mm-hmm. Um, they used they used fire to sort of spook out animals, and they always took the ones that they could afford to take. They didn't take like breeding age females. Mm-hmm. They already knew all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked after the animals they had very well. So it was it's quite 
it's quite amazing really and i'm very proud of my culture as well i i hope you keep doing what you do and i hope i get to you know i get to watch you do what you do because it's pretty cool um i've got a question we ask for all of our uh all of our guests uh it's it's the normal question we ask because this podcast is called STEM Punk. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd ask you, what does STEM mean? Like, what does STEM mean to you? Uh, STEM means everything. It's, you know, it's science, it's technology, it's, you know, engineering and it's mathematics and it's a collaborative effort and it's all science. If you ever have a question or an equation or anything like that, it's a science. So I think that STEM, what STEM means to me is is a collaborative effort. It's everyone working together to for a common goal because we've all got questions and we're all answering them. Yeah, we're all moving forward. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I like the teamwork thing. Yeah. Like- it, it's And it's important. It's important that we collaborate, just like it's important that we collaborate on Indigenous stuff as well. I think that... Um, as many as many indigenous people involved in science is is only going to make it it's stronger um, and I think that the stem movement is is an incredible movement and shows that you can bring all these people that are, are so different together it's really cool that this one sort of movement you know it's yeah it's a collaborative effort uh, I'll, I'll ask some some follow-ups because because I like to kind of probe stuff so do you think the uh, there are some people who think that A should be in STEM, right? Yeah. Or STEAM, A for the uh, the arts. Yep. Do you think, like, what do you think about that? Does it does it belong there, or does it? Do you have an opinion about that? Well, I think that I think STEM should stay the way it is, um, because art arts is its own sort of its own sort of genre of you know science where it's kind of like you're not really you're more you're more demonstrating the question rather than asking the question. And I think that cool. I think that science is asking the question and then arts is you kind of you kind of showing the thing. So they all have arts has its own important role to play. And I think that the STEM movement, we should all be moving together, mm-hmm. um, is moving forward. So I think that STEM should say the way it is. Um but I feel that arts, it should be acknowledged that arts has a role because you're kind of, you're showing, you're showing the way forward, you know. So it's sort of in the same sort of mould. Yeah. That's, uh, no one's ever said that before. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. Arts is demonstrating the questions. STEM is asking the question. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. Um, when you, when you're choosing books to send to indigenous schools like you're choosing science books right yeah and uh, yeah sorry how do you choose books or is it just whatever you can get um i choose books that i personally love because i think that as scientists and you know i'm not a scientist on paper but i I feel like a bit of a scientist because i always have questions that i need to ask and i find them in the books i read um any book that captures imagination is a really powerful thing um, whether you're playing a video game and it steals your attention or if you're like you're reading Harry Potter or you're reading a book that by Brian Cox or Dr. Carl, you know, that, that in itself is very powerful and they're kind of the books I send. Um, I still remember the first book I learned how to read, um, which is amazing. What book was it? And it was when I was six years old and it was, it got given to me by my grandfather and it was Harold Cogger, Reptiles in Colour. And he got it from an op shop and it had another little boy's name in it, but it was from 1985. 
and I read it so much, I can still remember which page some of the reptiles are on. Page six was the Eastern Water Dragon. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. so cool. <laughs> and um, from that book, what I gathered from that is that the really cool superpower that Eastern Water Dragons have, and they can sit underwater for about half an hour. So they can actually hold their breath. So they can jump into a dam and sit at the bottom of a dam and hold their breath for that long. And I sure. think that's really cool. I kind of think of Aquaman when I think of that, but yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that, like your mind. Uh, I love the idea that you look at a, a reptile or an animal and you think, well, you know, what's its superpower? Yeah. It's such a cool way of thinking about an animal and also, you know, telling that, that little fact to, to students, to kids. Yeah, it's, it's just really incredible. Like, and being Valentine's Day as well, I think I put <laughs> something out on Twitter about monogamous shinglebacks and, you know, the, the way that it captures my imagination is that for a reptile to be monogamous is is sort of unheard of and it's like it's a really little known fact like people don't really talk about it they think yeah. about blue tongues and shinglebacks as bobtails but they actually mate for life and i hope that when people know about that fact they might take a bit of care on the road and if they see a shingleback they won't run over it <laughs> yeah right my kids my kids were talking about shinglebacks just this morning oh wow yeah yeah okay. just in the car on the way to school they were like yeah. Oh, did you know that the you know the the tail looks like a head, so they can get bitten at the other end? You know, yeah, I love it. And you know, the thing I really like about those lizards are um, they're like a build, like they're like a sort of like a walking fridge. So they can go months and f- like months without water or food, and they can store all that fat in their tail. So the head looks like their tail, but it's it's like walking. It's like a walking pantry. So you know, <laughs> if food's scarce, they can have all that there. So and they eat absolutely anything. You know, you hear stories all the time of, you know, wonderful people. And they say, what, you know, what, do you, what got you into science? Or what got you into whatever it is? And they say, oh, is a book given to me by my mom or my grandpa or something like that. And as a parent, I panic <laughs> that yeah. I'm going to miss that chance to give my kids the book or the film or the, uh, or the, the toy that they, you know, I, you hear stories of uh, astronomers all the time. You know, oh, you know, my dad took me outside and pointed at the moon. Like, I come constantly trying to show my, look at the moon, there's the moon, there's the moon. <laughs> Just in case I don't miss that moment where they go, oh, I'm going to be an astronomer. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not that petrified. But, but I, lo- I love that. I'm, you know, just constantly give your kids books. And then here you are yeah. finding books that you love and sending them off to kids, to, to, to students yeah. who don't have these books, who have... 15 science books. Was it 15 science or total books? It was like 15 total books. And oh I think God. four of them were dictionaries. Sure. And it, it, like, Oh, my God. I'm not a really... I'm a kind of relaxed kind of guy, but it made me very angry. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think instantly I just was like, oh, i got to get these kids some books. And that's what Yeah, why would you have four dictionaries from a language that's not theirs yeah. rather than one dictionary for the probably four or five languages they speak <laughs> and, and the school ages you know it's from kindergarten to year 12 so mm. they need it like these kids need a range of books that so I, I got early learning all the way up to university level books and I, we just sent them away and it's been yeah it feels really special to do something like that because um, i know that those personal books that i had gave me so much enjoyment and so much knowledge and yeah, I'm glad I can share that. So, so where where do you get? Like we've gone back to books because it's great. Where do you get your books from? So, um, a few of them I've I've purchased. Um, so, I actually started a second job to sort of fund the Pathways movement. Um, very lucky that I've had Dr. Carl and a few other 
scientists, um, Marianne Large, you know, donate books and also from the Indigenous DVC. So it's quite growing. The books phenomenon is growing and it's it's so great because it's, it's made me closer to these people that I personally wouldn't really come into contact with if I wasn't doing this. And it's so great that we can share books and books that they loved as well. And then, you know, even when I'm packing away in the boxes, I, I'll see a book that Marianne had and I'm like, I know that she got so much enjoyment out of that book and that's really special. Um, I think that you sort of get captured by the information that's in books and it's so great that you can pass that on because they sort of just sit on the shelf. I th- yeah, there's a lot of people who would who would feel like, yeah, but, you know, the connection with that book, but then if they could think of the connection that someone else can make with that book, I think a lot of people would be like, okay, have it. Yeah. I'll give that to you. When when you send, let's say you send five books to a school, yep. do you try and get a selection of books, you know, f- you know, one from science, one that's engineering, one that's a bit maths, you know? So we, we've sent recently about 50 to one school. Okay. So um, all up, we've sent about 300 books. But I try and I try and get as much variety in there as, as I can. So my interest is in animals. But for me, I love astronomy. I love physics. I love anything that it just sort of feeds my brain. So like I call it brain food, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I try and do that with the books I send because I want to get as many... Um, I want to inspire as many people as I can because it's all real science. If you be, if you want to be a sports scientist or a physicist or a doctor or just even an animal technician, it's all going to be there and I want to make it available. And the inspiration, you know, one little book that might have a tiger in it that can inspire probably, you know, could potentially inspire a generation of zookeepers mm-hmm. and who better to tell you about animals and someone that is living and breathing that you know well i i hope that you the the stuff that you do becomes so successful that you have to start making choices about which books to send to people yeah I'll, I'll, i'll take it back to stem right so i hope that you have to have a category of books that you send to a school and that you have to you know have your quota of science and your quota of technology and your quota of engineering and maths books that you send to a school i hope that you've got that many books that you have to start choosing the the thing that i really like i've really enjoyed just with working with all these different people is that the books that we get are, are so they're so diverse and they're so great but we're doing this with zero funding yeah we're doing this on our own back and it's because like and you know we're it's just a bunch of good people trying to do good in the world and that's a really powerful thing and i think that like i really hope that this does grow that when people think of um you know they see a book on the shelf and they think oh wow like you know instead of throwing it out or just leaving it there maybe some other kid that you know that is probably 30 or 40 years younger than you can read the book and grow from that and that's a really powerful thing and i think most people would really like that it's better than going into landfill sure. <laughs> um have you had much feedback from the schools you're sending books to ah uh, yeah we've had a we've had a fair bit of feedback you know they, they they're obviously really grateful um the the indigenous kids they just want to learn like school uh. is everything to them like they you know it's it's not like sydney where there's sort of like school is for them is it's a social thing and it's where you get to learn and you can just grow and one of the schools have, have already 
you know thanked me for getting organizing the skype sessions with carl and you know it's not about the thanks it's just about doing the right thing and that's the most important thing and i really enjoy i enjoy the correspondence with the schools they've got a facebook page as well and i'm like i'm always just sort of liking it and yeah sure it's it's just really great that something so small that started off just me emailing and being crazy can turn into a thing where we're actually making a change in people's lives uh-huh. and um, a lot of the books they're translating into Aboriginal as well. So um, when they're teaching the kids how to read, they're, they're teaching them how to read in English and then translating it into their language, which is amazing. Yeah. And the, sc- the work that these teachers are doing up there is something that I think every Australian should know about because yeah, it's quite sure. powerful. Uh, I, I have some, some friends who spent a couple of years up in Groot Island yeah. doing some uh, yeah, some teaching at a, at a local school. I spent some time in Yokala as well, up in uh, uh, East Arnhem Land. And uh, the school thing I, I agree with, like these, yeah. these students are, pr- are proud to leave their country to go to Melbourne, for example, and study at a school from when they're 14. Yeah. And they, they're proud to go to school away from their family, away from their country, and then come back and start helping their yeah. community. I think that's pretty powerful. And and on the other hand at that as well, we've got a with those students, we've still got a we've got a role to as, you know, at the university to to look after those kids. And I think that the mentoring our brothers and sisters program here at the University of Sydney is really it's really powerful for that because you're you're putting peers with peers. And I think as a student, if you get paired up with a fellow student, you kind of look up to that student. And I think that the programs we've got are, are really amazing here at the University of Sydney. Um, one thing I would like to sort of add is um, even the high school kids that come to AIM, they're so proud to come to the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience Workshop Days um, because you've got someone that is just like, is so happy to see them succeed and that, i think that's a really amazing thing as well so yeah um so in order to not talk about that forever yeah i'm going to ask you a different question okay uh and this this has a, a condition with it the condition is i'll ask you a question then you ask me a question the question is from our previous uh guest yep who was ivy Ivy is a science journalist. She okay. works at UNSW. And we were talking about some things and she had a question and she didn't know that you were our next guest in, until last night. I didn't know that you were our next guest. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. The question is, uh, this is from Ivy. If there was one thing that you could have told yourself in the beginning uh, stages of your career, what would that be? So th- This is a fantastic question, by the way. Um, I would have told myself that the mind has no limits so I wouldn't have put limitations on myself and I feel like um just from you know my upbringing and you know my heritage I feel like you kind of get limitations put on you and I think that anyone really has the power to do anything if they can put their mind to it and it's it's passion is an amazing thing and I think I would have um I would have tried to follow my passions a bit more and probably um, maybe studied a little bit more. But I think that if I was to speak to my 16-year-old self, I'd try to tell myself not to be too hard on myself because I feel like um, as a teenager, you kind of you kind of are a bit hard on yourself when you, when you start working. You want to be, you know, Steve Irwin or you want to be <laughs> like Harry Butler. You want to be all these crazy zookeepers that 
did all these amazing things, but your time will come. So I think that I would tell myself to be a bit more patient and tolerant as well. So are you still uh, like uh, hard on yourself? Um, no, or, not particularly. Or you've taken your own advice? I, I've kind of, I think I've mellowed out in the last probably since I was shearing alpacas, actually. I think that was the biggest thing. Um, the first alpaca I ever shore broke my cheekbone. So, oh. um, and that was because I was so keen. I was like so rushing to get into it. And like, it could have easily made me say, oh no, never shear an alpaca again. But it actually drove me to, to be better. And I think that... Yeah, I think now I'm a bit more patient and I just sort of wait for things to come and, like, I kind of... I want to use that passion and enthusiasm to channel into to things where I can help other people and that's a really powerful thing, yeah. I find this incredible. Like, you've just told me that you are sitting here waiting you know you're happy to your time will come you know you wait for things to come but here you are you get up and you send books to indigenous kids changing lives that's fascinating yeah that, that you're you know you're not sitting down waiting for stuff to happen i i want yet, yeah yet you're saying <laughs> you know I'm, I'm waiting you know my time will come <laughs> it's cool i'm like uh, if I can say one thing to the listeners, isn't that I want everyone to delete "can't" from your vocabulary because sure. it's a silly, it's a silly thing. Because I think you spend most of your childhood that you can't do this, can't do that. Mm. But really, unless it's illegal, don't do illegal stuff. Um, you. <laughs> well, you, it's not that you can't do illegal yeah, stuff. Just well, you don't. can. You'll just end up in jail. That's <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I think that if you tell yourself that you can't do something like I can't go to university or I can't finish high school. Or, I can't be a zookeeper. Then the only one stopping you, the only person stopping you from doing that is yourself. And I think that we, we all as people need to delete that from our vocabularies. You know, I think we need to sort of remove that sort of stigma um, away from, you know, like the amount of kids I talk to, they go, Oh, you know, uni's not for me. Cause my teacher told me that I need this mark to get into uni and well you know one day uni will be for you yeah. so if you really want to go you can do it uh, I'll butcher the quote but it's something like whether you whether you think you can or you can't you're right yeah something like that yeah uh, yeah I like I like that like the so my kind of philosophy is with sending books to Northern Territory there's probably you know there's probably one out of every ten people who tell me I couldn't do that but I'm just like why not yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I wanted to do it, so I did it. <laughs> yeah, look at the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, again. That's why I'm doing. The, the, one of the reasons I do this podcast because nobody told me I can't. Yeah, exactly. So I just did it. <laughs> and that's you know that that's the way. This is the way it's sort of the indigenous pathways is. You know, we have so many gifts as people, and that so much knowledge that we can use, and we can. You know, that's yeah. the thing we can. So, yeah. Okay, so nice, nice answer. I like that. What's your question to the next guest? And I have no idea who that is. So my question for the next guest, whoever you are, is I hope that, like, what is, how do you communicate what you do? So um, that's a pretty complicated question, but how do you see what you do? Where do you see yourself in the science world? Where do you see yourself in, in science and how yeah. do you communicate what you do? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. So, nice. um, and I think that yeah, I hope that I can't wait to listen and hear the answer to that one because yeah, yeah, I'm sort sure. of figuring that out myself. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, um, yeah, 
whenever whenever we have guests uh, ask the question, I always like to try and chat about it a bit. But uh, you know, for me, what I do is science communication. Yeah. So the question of what do you do and how do you communicate? Well, it's kind of my job. So I should know, right? But I think <laughs> but, it's an ever evolving answer. <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. So one day it might be I want to mentor indigenous kids, but then it might be the next day that you just want to mentor, you know, older people. You want to inspire anyone. And I think that it's a good way to be. I think if you think of a Pokemon, you know, I'd rather be a Ditto than, you know, a Ditto is something that transforms into other Pokemon than a you know something that's just the same i'd rather just (laughs) i'd rather help everyone um but yeah i think that it's an ever-evolving question who am i and why am i here and that's a science question so that's why we communicate science yeah sure yeah Uh, i have so many questions but i won't um uh i I do want to ask you one more question yeah fine or you know whatever a bunch but the the last one and i didn't tell you about this one okay um, but it's it's a it's a different question. When you are, well, I like I like to 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 learn like you. I like mm. to feed my brain, and I like to go and find out stuff that other people are excited about. Or um, another way of saying it is everybody's a nerd. Yeah. Right. So some people are politics nerds, or sports nerds, or car nerds, or science nerds, right? Uh, reptile nerds, whatever. <laughs> Everyone's a nerd. Um, what do you nerd out about? Like so, for example, once we stop talking, or once someone stops listening to this podcast, what do you want them to go and find out? So I'm like a massive sports fan, so I'd say I'm a bit of a sports nerd as well as um, a reptile nerd, as well as an alpaca nerd. But <laughs> what I would like everyone to do is find out a bit more about alpacas because they're so fascinating, and the amount of people that get confused between a llama and alpaca, even though they're two completely different camelids, is it's horrific. <laughs> So, so tell me some alpaca facts. So alpacas are really cool, right? So they've got, it's quite interesting. So alpacas actually kill foxes, uh-huh. right? And you don't think of them, you think of these, you know, herbivores that sort of chew a bit of grass and they kind of spit a bit of grass, but they, um, their natural predator is a puma, right? So they, uh, nat- they're really good sheep guards. So they'll protect lambs till the cows come home. They will actually kill foxes. Mm-hmm. And they use these as, um, they use these down in Daniloquin and down south. And um, a lot of lamb herds will have alpacas in the herds and they use them as sort of um, protectors of the lambs. And they also have a very, very bis- a big dislike for wedge-tailed eagles. Really? Yeah, and it's incredible. So, <laughs> if a wedge-tailed eagle flies down and gets a lamb, there's a good chance the alpaca will try and kick the eagle and try and knock the lamb out. And it's quite amazing. And I've seen it once. And it's they, they're just such great sheep guards. Um, the other thing is what I want people to know is that why do alpacas spit? Everyone thinks of alpacas spitting. But it's actually a really good defense mechanism. Sure. So what they'll do is they'll spit on each other. So because pumas and their predators in Peru have an excellent sense of smell. So how, like if you smell foul, then, you know, you're less likely to be found. Mm-hmm. So they do that with each other. And also generally if something's attacking you, if you spit at something, then it's less likely to attack you. Yeah, or sure. be put off by that. They also um, are really cool at, um, they do really well in arid environments. So down in Narandra and down in the central tablelands where there's not so much grass and feed about, they'll do really well. Um, They'll do really well in places in Queensland. Um, They're less likely to do well in a lush paddock full of uh, grass. 
And they also, which is a really cool fact, and I think you'll love this, is they can sense what minerals they're low in. So if they're low in calcium, they can sense that and they'll eat a bit of grass over here. So if you, I want everyone to watch an alpaca eat in or a, a goat or a cow, they never eat in the same spot. And the reason why they never eat in the same spot is because they can sense which grass is better for them. So if they need a bit of this over here and then a bit of this over there, then they'll eat the grass over there. And sometimes you'll see them poke their heads through fences and eat grass that's on the side of the road when there's a green paddock behind them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so yeah. it's like the, the the food group triangle for them. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm low on uh, legumes. Yeah. So it's got to go and get the the you know the rich mineral vitamin stuff in that bit of I'm there. low on calcium so I'll go and eat this bit of grass that's on the side of the road <laughs> wow so they they're really unique animals um yeah and I think that they're it's something that I never realized until I started working with them how unique they were you know I'd sort of just see oh it's an alpaca but they're actually really really cool animals and you were shearing them for their fur I was shearing them for their fleece yep. and their fleece is not really so yeah got the right real wrong word no it's cool um they're not really the fleece isn't that really big in australia there's actually a meat market for alpacas now Mm -hmm. and you can go have an alpaca burger i think it's down at berry pub on the south coast yeah it's a very it's very gamey um not really my cup of tea but i've eaten it a couple times yeah wow there you go go learn about alpacas (laughs) where's a good place to learn about alpacas uh where's a good place to learn about alpacas barima down in the southern highlands um Mm -hmm. they've an alpaca center down there and it's quite amazing and it's really interesting as well so the other thing that you should is worth noting is the difference between alpacas and llamas llamas were bred with guanaco which is another camelid and another extinct camelid and they were used as herding animals so their their fleece is quite different and they're quite different they're larger so they grow to about 200 kilos and alpacas grow to about 90 to 100 yeah, right. Yeah. So, the alpacas are the small ones. Yeah, our alpacas are actually bred with vicuña and vicuña and a camelid and I'm probably, yeah, they probably, they don't really have them in Australia. They used to have a couple out at Dubbo Zoo many years ago, but uh-huh. they are very um, aggressive and uh-huh. they don't grow a lot of fleece, but the other extinct camelid they were bred with by the ancient Peruvians created wool and fleece, so that's what they use, so... Yeah, they're not very good herding animals and they don't like being on their own. So, yeah. <laughs> real, real social. Yeah, real social. They yeah, love cool. they love being with other alpacas. So. Uh, on, on Valentine's Day, do they mate for life? So, no, they don't mate for life. I'm sure somewhere out there listening, there'll be an alpaca breeder that's breeding their alpacas. Um, so, they, they don't mate for life, but they... Um, they definitely... They have these fighting teeth. These fighting teeth are located behind the bottom palate and they use these to castrate each other. So oh, wow. they use these fighting teeth. They're like fishing hooks. Yeah. So they won't kill each other like most males will um, to get the females. They will actually castrate each other and render that male unproductive. Wow. And those males just sort of join the herd in their own sort of crew and they're called weathers. So same as sheep is called weathers and they're castrated males. So, But yeah. not castrated by the farmer, castrated by... No, castrated by the other, the stud male alpaca. So, wow. Yeah, he lives all happy and yeah. So, um, <laughs> these fighting teeth are quite nasty as well. So if you do happen to shear alpacas, you can get these in your hand and they're quite, they can cause quite a few puncture wounds. So, yeah, yeah, right. They're like little fishing hooks. So they're pretty cool. And most, and camels have them as well. So they're kind of like a camel canine. So there you go. I, to be honest, this is infinitely more about alpacas that I ever knew. That's fine. But that's cool. (laughs) 
So, I mean, um, I just kind of, yeah, I mean, all animals, I've sort of got a, a bit of a, I love like facts. Like, I think they're really short, sweet facts. They're just really cool. So, so would the superpower for the alpaca be that it can detect when it's low on something? Yeah, I think the superpower for the alpaca is actually, um, it's the spit. I think oh, yeah. alpaca spit is a superpower because it's, you know, a personal deodorant might not be a nice one, but it stops you sort of predator from tracking you down. Uh-huh. And it also is a really good deterrent for uh-huh. a predator that's attacking you because no one really likes being spat at. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So um, it's really cool. There's a, there's a species of snake. It's called the um, Mozambique cobra. It's in South Africa. And they've evolutionally got these holes in their fangs where they can actually squirt venom. Yeah, right. And it's it's actually a similar sort of thing is that they're more it's more a defense mechanism than it is to envenomate you. But they actually just squirt. If there's a mongoose or, or whatever trying to attack it, it will squirt venom into its eyes and permanently blind that animal. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. I think a lot of animals are sort of that do that and it's just yeah, it's an animal superpower. It's pretty cool. Mate, what uh fascinating. I've no more words. But so I'll stop soon, but do you have anything else that you uh, like anything else that I've I've not missed that you think that you need to say and say it? I'm a- I'm actually looking at I'm actually going to be creating my own podcast which cool. I, I would love to have you involved in but Sure. It's the Indigenous Science Podcast. So, we'll be looking at um, Indigenous science from back in the day, which, you know, deadly stuff. And then we'll be looking at researchers that are Indigenous that are doing great work today around the country. And hopefully we can inspire a few people and we can grow this thing that is, you know, it's in its little planter box at the moment. So, I'm giving it a bit of a water, but it's many people that are working towards to build this pathways network and yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, i'm glad you mentioned it because I've, I've got some ideas man so many so many thanks i i really appreciate you coming here at such short notice and chatting with me uh, i'll put this up as soon as i can and hopefully we can have lots of interaction anytime like thanks for having me i think anytime you get the chance to speak about something you're passionate about is is a it's a beautiful thing and i hope that i hope as many people listen to this as they can because um I'm free and available to become a communicator and go on as many podcasts as possible. And I want to create this Indigenous committee and Pathways Network and so we can get more mob into science. Awesome, man. Thanks so much again. Thanks for having me. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.